Nicholas McEnany, you're a writer and a teacher and you and I are in conversation today because I've stumbled across Rainbow Dads, which is a brilliant podcast series. Can you tell listeners about it for those who might not be aware uh, to set set the scene? Yes, absolutely. Um, I uh, About four or five years ago, I was commissioned to write a series for, a, a drama series for BBC Radio 4 called How to Have a Perfect Marriage. And it was about a middle-aged man who come, who's married, who comes out. It was biographical because it's very much based on my journey. But I also felt that it was a subject that would unearth a lot of interest. Because I do think there are a lot of gay men and gay women, uh, I, won't, I won't say trapped in marriages, but in marriages who have, who have for whatever reason, uh, got married and had children and, and may indeed deeply love their partners and their children, but for this, you know, this huge red elephant in the room. So I wrote this series and it went out with Greg Wise and Julia Ford and John Sessions and it was very successful. And they asked me to write three more. So I was able over the course of four years to explore what happens to a marriage when a partner comes out with this devastating news. Um, and out of that, I got to meet a lot of guys who were in this situation. And in particular, I met one guy called Richard, Richard Shannon, who worked at Goldsmiths. And he came to me with the idea of doing a podcast. Um, and so I thought this was a terrific idea. So I put out an advert via Facebook and a couple of other friends of mine. A very good friend called David Chalmers was really instrumental in this. And I was incredibly lucky in getting a really diverse bunch of guys. Um, somebody from a Sikh arranged marriage, somebody who'd been in an evangelical church, um, and uh, and somebody else who was as big a David Barry fan as I was. So that was great. So back in April of uh, last year, we met over a couple of Sundays, and I had worked out four or five areas I wanted to talk about, and we just sat down and um, over a process of about six hours, we did the interviews. I was very lucky. I got my daughter, who's a professional DJ uh, um, uh, and musician, to do the soundtrack. And Richard was able to use the facilities at uh, Goldsmith to create a very, what I think is a very professional sounding podcast. And uh, then we put it out in September. We got some fantastic support from Switchboard, the LGBT uh, call centre, who do such marvellous work um, with people who phone in. And they uh, helped us launch it, and it's done incredibly well. We've got nearly 7,000 downloads. I've done lots of interviews, like this one, for example. Um, lots of interest from people contacting me, and we've already uh, were nominated for a 2020 Podcast Award. So it's been a really fantastic vindication of, of what we thought, if we could do this well, would be a great resource. Absolutely. And it's coming up to a year since you did it. I'm just doing the math if it was done in September. And I literally listened to it over one weekend. I shooed all the family out of the kitchen and I hold myself up in the kitchen <laughs> and I was there under the guise of doing cooking. But there was something about the podcast after I listened to the first episode that became extremely addictive. And for me, it was about the lived experiences of all this man. Why is it that we as listeners, as we as people now, want to learn more about relationships and what others have gone through? Well, this is, this is absolutely what we hope, because, you see, we always thought we have an audience out there, but our audience aren't necessarily going to identify themselves because they will be men 
in these relationships who won't necessarily want to stick their heads over the parapet. But we also thought that a women would be interested because it would offer an insight into male sexuality, I suppose, on one level, and that the women like yourself who listen to it could then be making comparisons with your experiences. Yeah? And uh, maybe also it, it is still unusual for a group of men to sit and talk so honestly and rawly about going through this process. And again, I think that's something that maybe is a bit of a generalization, maybe women are more comfortable with. So we always thought that it was going to be you know, straight women <laughs> gay men who were going to be our first <laughs> yeah. audience. Yeah. And, um, and that has turned out to be the case. But to answer your question generally, aren't we always interested in relationships mm. and particularly long-term relationships? I'm fascinated, you know, I'm the sort of person who gets weepy when I see old couples holding hands in the street. Yeah. You know, I just think it's wonderful. And I kind of want to go up to them and say, you know, if you had a marriage for 50 years, how did you do it? Mm. You know, what's the secret? And I think we're all, we're all looking for that connection with one person. Um, and we're looking uh, for that relationship that will grow over time. And what yeah. was particularly, what's particularly kind of interesting about Rainbow Dads is that all of the men that I interviewed undoubtedly felt very sincere love for their partners, but had to come to terms with the fact that they were either gay or bisexual and what that meant. So uh, by doing that, you become very vulnerable. Mm. You know, you become very vulnerable and you learn stuff about life. And I think there's still a sense in which men can't be vulnerable, but it's when we're vulnerable as men that we really learn something about ourselves and the people who love and support us really rally around. Um, absolutely. And I think that comes across so loud and clear through the podcast. And you spoke about connection. You've got a connection to Hertfordshire in that you grew up here. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Yeah? Yeah, I, I, was, I was born in Bishop Sportsford and um, I spent my early childhood there in Warwick Road. Um, my parents lived in Warwick Road. And I, I also... And then... I went to uh, the prep school for a couple of years, would you believe? <laughs> and then um, I was sent away to school, to a boarding school where my father had gone to in Sussex. So my first sort of 15 years, 15 years was spent in uh, Bishop Stortford and, and Hertfordshire. And, you know, I, um, so yes, I have a strong connection uh, with, with the place. And um, it, it's fascinating to go back. I very occasionally go back. And of course, when you go back to somewhere where you were very, you remember from your childhood, everything seems about three times smaller than it was. <laughs> That's true, yeah. But you're always reassured to, to, to note that the same, some of the same pubs are still there and some of the same little landmarks and things. So, yes, yeah, Bishop Storford was... Um, was I, I would have to be honest and say I had a slightly mixed feeling about Bishop Storford. You know, um, I, I went to a boarding school in Sussex and 20 miles away was Brighton. And Brighton was like this big, glamorous... Mm. You know, it was like that. It was like the fair at the end of the pier with bright lights. <laughs> um, Bishop Storford was much quieter than that. Yeah, polar opposites. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. During the during the punk time, there was a fantastic. I was a punk boy in 1976. There was a fantastic piece of graffiti in Bishop Storford. It said, "No anarchy for Bishop Storford." <laughs> That's a very polite, else polite country, way of phrasing it. writing up anarchy in the UK and God save the Queen. Uh, Bishop Stortford, he just said, no anarchy for Bishop Stortford. A sign of the times. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But I do have happy memories as well. And I think 
it's um it's it was it is i don't know how, how it's changed but it did seem then quite a quiet dormitory town they called yeah. it yeah did any of that experience lend itself into your journey to become a playwright? Like, what was the point in which you were thinking yeah. or you you started absorbing yourself more into writing? Because it's such a visceral thing, isn't it, to be a playwright? Do you know what? Um, I Because I lived in, War- in Warwick Road, I went to Thorn Grove Primary School when it opened in 1965. So I was amongst the very first intake. And... Um, you know, at, at the time, I think the, the, the schools um, drew from cohorts in, in council estates and more middle-class areas. So it was quite socially diverse and mixed. Mm. And I do remember that gave it a real, even then when I was a, a tiny little lad, I think we, it, I sensed a kind of energy there. And the school uh, ran a, um, a school play and I, was, I managed to get a part in the school play. I think it was kind of a version of The Nutcracker. Mm. And uh, I remember um, uh, 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 my mother had a, a velvet cloak. I remember she was very proud of that. She didn't want anybody to uh, touch it. And I remember sneaking that out of the house so I could wear it in this play. Isn't it funny, the things you remember? Yeah. But I think doing that piece of drama and feeling that um, relationship with an audience was one of my first experiences of how wonderful it could be. And... Although I've written for television and I've written for radio, um, stage still has that kind of absolute kind of visceral kind of power. You just have a group of people in a room and another group of people telling a story and you have no idea how you're all going to feel at the end of the evening. And that's incredibly exciting. Mm. So again, it's another form of connection, of course. It's, you know, all art is about everything that we do to express ourselves creatively is about trying to connect with people and trying to yeah. kind of, you know, grow, grow people's understanding of what it feels like to be you. How do you feel about Heart's Pride, which is coming up on the 22nd of August, I think, which is a Sunday, being a virtual event? How are people feeling about not being able to connect in person this year for such yeah. a celebratory event? It is difficult, isn't it, when you have a celebration? And mm. there's nothing like, you know, as I said, because... Certainly the gay life is very social and, you know, I'm really missing dancing. You know, I, you know, mm. I love occasionally going to a club and going absolutely crazy and dancing and dancing. And it's a great shame. But look, we hope that it's not going to be, you know, this is, this is going to be something that's going to be temporary. I mean, we had tickets to Brighton Pride uh, and that's been, been cancelled. I'm really pleased the organisers have found other ways to celebrate what it means to be LGBTQIA. I think that's really important. And actually, maybe in some funny way, it's made people be a little bit more imaginative or a little bit more considered in what they do. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that it's really important to support um, these uh, festivals. And it, isn't it wonderful? You know, I grew up, you know, when I was nine or 10 and I was first kind of questioning my own sexual identity, there was nothing in Hartford, nothing at all. And now, you know, 50 years on, You've got a, 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 an event that takes place in which people's lives are valued and their point of view is valued and people feel included and people feel they can contribute. And that's just wonderful. It seems to me a fantastic a fantastic example of how far we've come. I do too, and I think it's been quite astounding how many connections have been made online over the last five months. You, like you say, we've yeah. 
we are inherently adaptable creatures, humans, and I think it's been quite spectacular how we've created all these brilliant ways to engage with each other online. Yeah. So I've got I mean, let me give no you a small example. Mm. I, my, hus- my husband runs exercise classes, with dra- and he's called Drag Diva Fit. We have drag queens in our exercise classes. <laughs> because uh, it's in, Why not? And, and, and that was... That was that was being a great success until lockdown happened, and of course we've had to improvise. But what we've done is that we've all organised these exercise classes online, and a couple of drag queens have come round to our flat, and they've made themselves up, and we've done shows um, for 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 private parties, and also we did something for the um, uh, National Child Line. Their staff were doing a whole week of kind of activities, so we found we found ways in which to keep that spirit going, and you know. And drag, drag queens love a performance. You know, they see they see a, a you know they see a spotlight and they immediately move it, move towards it. So, <laughs> so this is really yeah. <laughs> see a sequence see a sequence in the bow and they're there. So, <laughs> I love that. So, uh. so there's something about that kind of resilience that that, that one really wants to one really wants to cherish mm. and celebrate, and also recognise that we are in relative terms, very lucky, very fortunate, because there are other parts of the world that can't celebrate this whole identity quite so openly. That's very true. And can you signpost listeners to Rainbow Dads, please, Nicholas, for those that may not have heard it or would like to now uh, have a listen? Yeah. How can they find it? Well, I tell you, Rainbow Dads, it's on Apple, iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on a site called Podbean. Just tap in Rainbow Dads. And we will come up with a, with a cute little graphic. Um, please do listen to it, recommend it. If you want to re- give us a review, that would be tremendous too. Um, and also, um, if if anybody felt like they would like to contribute towards the next series, which you and I off off um, just a little bit before we started recording, we're chatting about. That would be terrific too. And perhaps I can maybe send ideas through to you, Leona, and you can pass them on to me. Okay, great. And is that what you're doing over the next few months? What's on the horizons for you at present? At the moment, I'm doing a lot of Zoom meetings, which, as you can probably experience, is basically sucking the energy out of me. I think uh, teaching over Zoom is very difficult. I do teaching. I'm writing. I have a radio play coming out. Oh, great. On the 24th of August with Francis Barber and Sean Phillips on Radio 4 which is an adaptation of a novella by a French writer called Colette, Break of Day. So that's coming out. Um, I've also um, uh, been doing some writing for another pilot. But we're hoping very much, Richard and I, to get another set of uh, ideas together so that we can record Rainbow Dads too, which we probably would have done had had lockdown not happened. Mm. And then try and get those out by the end of the year. Um, and also, I've been doing some great work with a couple of organisations that's come out of this. I've been working with SLAG, which is Friends and Family um, or, or, or of the LGBT community, a great organisation called the NAS and MAP Foundation, who work with um, people of LGBTQ uh, background who have very strong faith backgrounds. So I think that's really important work. And uh, also, the, the, the biggest place, and somewhere I would like to put that out there, because you may have listeners who may need to use the services switchboard which is the oldest lgbt counseling service um around has been going for nearly 45 years and uh they operate a wonderful um uh telephone uh, service for anybody who needs calm words when you need them most so i'll continue to kind of push that agenda as well so that people don't feel isolated out there alone people feel they can have somebody to talk to and hopefully our next 
series will be Rainbow Mums, maybe t- t- tackle some trans issues, uh, and just open up the debate even further. The event that probably made the biggest difference to us in Rainbow Dads was Philip Schofield coming out. Why was that? Because suddenly, the, you know, he was married and he was in his sort of 50s and then he came out and suddenly mm. it was part of a big national debate. I did a Guardian podcast. I was on the news, things like that. So that's, what's, that, what's interesting about that is that when you, uh, you have a well-loved personality who's very mm. well-known, who's undergoing a similar kind of experience, suddenly people can relate to it in a way that they wouldn't do before. People who wouldn't necessarily feel that it was in their kind of uh, emotional kind of landscape suddenly looked at Philip Schofield and wondered, uh, you know, and thought, oh my goodness, you know, and because they liked him, that also meant that people were more accepting. 